welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Jeremy Robinson. Jeremy is an internationally recognized strength and conditioning coach with over 12 years of experience coaching and consulting within various law enforcement agencies. This is combined with 10 years of service within operational law enforcement, having worked in general duties policing, public order, and tactical response teams. In addition to working as a practitioner, Jeremy has both published and presented internationally several research studies within the field of strength and conditioning for specialist tactical teams. In this episode, Jeremy discusses his move from serving in law enforcement to becoming a performance coach, the challenge of working with tactical personnel versus the traditional sport model, how his training and testing model has evolved over the years, how he individualizes training for younger operators and older veterans, and how he achieved buy-in from the officers he worked with. Hi, Jeremy. How are we doing, mate? Welcome to the podcast. Morning, John. Your time. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, it's, a, it's a good thing you do a podcast and i um, very privileged to be part of it. No problem, mate. Thank you very much. I mean, me and you have been chatting a little bit for a while now over social media. You've been very, very uh, beneficial to me by sending on some of the research with the guys you've been working with. And it's been really interesting to see some of the adaptations and things that have been going on there. Uh, with regards to your background, for the guys who may not be familiar with you, could you just give us a little bit of an overview of like your, your history and where you've come from and where you are now? Yeah, so with, uh, with sport, I started off obviously when I was uh, young, being really interested in a variety of different sports growing right up. So mainly the main interest was rugby, um, but also played cricket and all sports I did really involved with so um a pretty good upbringing with my parents that assisted in um taking me to and from rugby league trainings games and a lot of dedication from them to support me um and growing up through through the sporting uh model that i sort of you know where led to rugby league mainly um into uh, a bit of semi and professional playing career with um, starting with the Canberra Raiders in the Super League in uh, 1996. Uh, I think it was that area. Now it's obviously the NRL in Australia. Um, so I was fortunate enough there to debut in 1996. Um, and the year after in 97, uh, went over to England, played in the English Super League with uh, a club, Paris Saint Germain. I think the club is uh, the French Catalans over in the English Super League. So earlier on, yeah, had a good opportunity um, to be part of you know, pro sport. Um, and as all good things sometimes come to an end, uh, at the back end of that 1997, I started having some niggles with some injuries. Um, and I just decided to look at what other possibilities outside of uh, sport that uh, career-wise I could uh, look at. Um, from there, yeah, uh, uh, at the time, I thought, yeah, policing, Always had an interest in policing. Um, my uncle uh, had been involved in law enforcement for 30 years here in Australia. Um, so I had a good discussion with him about it at the time and uh, about his career. And then, uh, yeah, at the end of about 1998, I uh, joined one of the Australian police forces at the time. Um, from there, 10 year, 10 year career within the police. Um, 
in different areas in the police, from the generalist policing roles right into the specialist specialist groups with riots, public order, and into the tactical field, um, which lasted over ten years, as I just mentioned. Uh, from that, yeah, I've always had an interest in the physical part of it. Obviously, the the backgrounding of sport and being having to be physically prepared, and then leading into policing. I that's where I realised how important your physical preparation is to um, to all your outcomes within that the occupation. Um, and especially going into the selection courses that I had to take myself into the specialist groups, as then how far um, one could be pushed physically and mentally. Um, yeah, and then once I uh, resigned from the police around 2009, 10, uh, the opportunity come into well, the field I'm in now is into the strength and conditioning for for the tactical teams in Australia, and there was a position opened up with one of the. Uh, the law enforcement agencies and applied having the background a bit of both operational experience and strength conditioning and um, that's where I've ended up really back into the position today. Nice mate and I mean you're saying there you, you served your 10-year your career within the police force going from general policing into more some specialist units so what was it that made you want to make the jump initially away from uh, policing into like performance sport S&C uh, as a career, as a coach? Yeah, like I, like I discussed um, with you there, it's just the background of wanting and enjoyed physical training, preparing, like day in, day out, regardless of what uh, the occupation I was in or sport, I just like training. I just like training with my mates, uh, especially in group environments, just getting out and about and training hard and um, trying to physically... Yeah, yeah, prepare myself for um, for the sports or and uh, policing itself. Um, so then, I'd, yeah, it, it gave me a, an idea of career path. So then the education and learning and obviously going through and doing all um, our stuff with uh, the education, learning, exercise, science, right through the S&C kind of backgrounds there. So that sort of prompted me into, uh, you know, I might as well yeah, make a career out of this now. I've got a really good interest. I've uh, had some some applied practices and experiences with it um, mm -hmm. and then how best I could put it back into the field. And uh, I think it's so valid and, and an important part of a very hard occupation um, in law enforcement as part of all first responders. It's very important. So I thought the best that I could give back to that community is by um, now obviously sharing with some experiences operationally, but then putting it into a context about to how you need to physically prepare for longevity and, uh, and, and wellness. No, that sounds awesome, dude. And I mean, I think you're in a very good spot for that. As you say, you've got that background from obviously doing the job for 10 years and having that tactical experience as well as the, the sports science and S&C sort of background to come in and back that up with it. For the guys who may not be familiar with what you're doing now, you just talk to us about your your current role, what you're doing, and like what the the actual demands are placed on like the, the individuals you're working with versus what would be faced by more of a general policing sort of uh, operator. Yeah, different law enforcement uh, agencies, I suppose, around the world uh, have different uh, different roles and functions. Um, generous and generous policing right through the specialist groups with in relation to your physical preparedness. I don't see much of a difference in relation to how you should look at things where 
you, you've got to have your health first. You know, your health first before any kind of your physical modalities. Because um, if you aren't getting your, your proper sleep, if you aren't getting your proper nutrition in that end, nothing else will come after that. So I think from a generalist right up into that elite specialist capability, you need to have them there, the consistent foundations of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in relation to, I suppose, the task might be a bit different. You know, with a generalist, a police are going to be there on any, mainly any situation first before the specialist groups anyway, majority of the time, um, unless they're pre-planned jobs. So the, the difference maybe is what tasks and equipment they'll carry which will have an effect physically on uh, how they perform their role so that it linked in with obviously the learning based skills that a generalist might have towards the tactical um, tactical operator um, but in relation to the, the physical preparedness like i mentioned the biggest thing is i see is having your health first or um, if your health is not up to up to scratch and nothing else will follow from it um, but the biggest thing yeah as we discussed is the equipment need to be that needs to be utilised to get the job done. And I mean, within within the the more specialist branches of the, the police over there, like how many sort of guys would you have uh, within, like, say, a team, like a number of operators, and you know, what is the the general age demographic you're looking at to work with there? In Australia, there's it's probably around seven specialist tactical units within Australia and different regions. Um, Areas and numbers, I do say. Uh, we can look up to where I coach around probably 50, 50 operators. Um, and, and this is a big thing about the ageing, ageing of that population. Variance from 20, 20, 22, right up to 50, 55 and experience in the operators. Um, so, that, so that becomes a, a big issue when looking at individualisation with, with training programs and that and too, and what you're actually going to, Expose in volumes and intensities with them, um, with them operators compared to, like you just mentioned, the the young ones compared to the uh, the older experienced operators. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, for getting into uh, these sort of roles, is there is there a selection process for these guys to move from general policing into some more of the specialist roles, and um, how often do they come about for those guys if there are some of those about? Yeah, there is a. Uh, a recruitment gateway from um, the generalists or investigations kind of policing into our uh, specialist tactical groups. Um, Again, within each jurisdictions, their testing models or barrier testing, so to speak, might be different. So around Australia, there's not one actually consistent tactical group has the same consistent battery of tests. So from one jurisdiction to another might be different. And I think you find that mostly around the world as it is as these days. So, mm-hmm. um, but the ones I've been involved with, we usually have a more or less a health-based model testing. So that more or less looks at your, the general's police is their general physical pep preparedness. So you're to stick with your general beep test, uh, push-ups, sit-ups, and your strength endurance, your grip strength. Um, so their main function, you know, more or less agility. So you just got your generalist kind of, general physical preparedness, uh, field-based tests. And then once uh, they sort of meet an acceptable standard have passes in, in them tests, then they can go into more or less the task-specific tests. So then you've got your load carriage test. You've got your more of uh, your man-down drills with your dummy drags, your more explosive repeat efforts to mimic the tasks that uh, they're performed operationally. So they're critical. They're critical, I see, that... Uh, 
they're undertaken prior to a selection phase because a lot of the selection phases they will encompass the the candidates a lot of that work load um, when they're fully drained so it can be a sort of a risk mitigator as well so um, from having just a, a beat test then without actually assessing someone with some kind of low carriageability it just opens up the whole different case to risk case and injuries cool man i mean i know from chatting to you jeremy your background you've worked obviously in pro sport as well with canberra raiders um i'm quite intrigued obviously i come from more of a performance sport background so i just want to know what the the main differences and biggest challenges you'd say you typically face going from say working with the police versus the the traditional sports performance model yeah i think uh originally you look at uh, resources resources in in law enforcement just speaking for law enforcement not so much the military and that where they might have big large groups of pdis so from a sporting model as you're aware john Pro sport, you'd be looking at having, you know, a staff, a high performance staff of three SNCs and two physio based, a club doctor, and then you might have some other therapists in there as well, looking after, you know, your first team and then your academy squad. So you've got a big team to start with. So um, this is where obviously I've come across is having, you know, myself looking after 50 odd, you know, with the various age groups. So again, back in that pro sporting model, you might be looking at a an age demographic population of 20s. Whereas now you've got that vast one where I mentioned before, looking after 23 to 56 year old operators. So encompassed with that with a different training history, injury history. So that's where the complexity is and where um, I suppose they don't really teach you at uni about how to adapt. Um, as we know, adapting to the applied stuff on your feet. Um, mm -hmm. There's no textbook really can can teach you how to do that. It just comes with experience and um, having buy-in from the operators and um, the processes always are gonna be different. Um, the periodization models that don't work within the population I work with compared to the pro sport thing, which is totally out there for myself. I really just don't look past a two week model at this stage, just with many micro cycles because of just the constant change. So. So all that kind of block periodization, all that kind of modeling, um, yeah, it might look best on paper, but when, uh, when it comes down to it, it's very hard. Um, but that's the art of coaching uh, within this specialist, uh, specialist workforce uh, compared to uh, the pro sport. But definitely the age is a big thing and about uh, what kind of training loads and intensities you can actually input um, and what you want to look at. Um, what you want to get out of them um, and what the consequences are for overtraining or undertraining. Um, and then we're able to follow that up with, depending on resources, money, financial things, constraints about the exercise science technology that you can uh, utilise as well. So where I started out, I had none of that. You know, I had to really base myself off just some basic methods and principles to look at what outcomes I can get. Um, Compared again with a, a pro sporting model, you might have a, you might be able to have a good link in with a good uh, university research where you can then utilise a lot of these testing um, testing systems and equipment such as your force plates and uh, your gym awares and your linear transducers as I mentioned and all that. But uh, if you don't have that, that's where you've got to come in, see where you can get uh, bang for your buck on the floor 
Um, so that so that's a big big hurdle. Well, that's interesting. I mean, you're saying obviously you you switched to more of a two week uh, program for the guys and trying to look at some of the kit you could potentially use with them. So how has that evolved for you, that trend model? Like, how did your training model for the guys look like when you first started with the group you're working with versus what you're doing now with them? Yeah, the, the big thing is, again, on uh, the equipment that you, that you have, the location, um, the time you have with them, uh, and yeah, what, what uh, systems you're going to put in place, place to get that outcome. So when I first started, yeah, it was just more or less uh, a small training area, you know, very much equipment um, and how then you get buy-in from what you're going to implement to, to your outcomes with that. So I think initially, I think a lot of S&C coaches working within this population look at, uh, you've got to look at the injury history of the, the area you work in and then work up from there. So it was, a, it was a no-brainer looking at lower limb injuries from overuse from running in this population. I had really a, a two two segment um, unit, ones that were runners and ones that were just bodybuilders. So had one end of the one end of the spectrum to the next. So when you go in there, you're seeing a lot of uh, lower limb injuries because um, just old traditional methods. They just did the slow long runs because mm-hmm. I thought, you know, when you go in there, you look at the the models of training. It really wasn't performance outcome. So it was more or less looked at PT as a filler in the day. A filler was always done first before you went and done anything. So when that's left by the cells, everyone individually is just going to go back to what they're used to doing. So majority was just doing long runs, circuit-based stuff with calisthenics, sit-ups, push-ups, and pull-ups. Um, or then you had the bodybuilders at the other end and just did heaps of their curls. So from there, um, it's then how what you put in place to, to sort of bring it back in a bit to a performance sort of model. Um, and then, then just seeing how you go by introducing slowly some of the, the exercise science technology to, to introduce and test, um, which then can uh, help you in the, in the future, as it did with me. Um, originally, to get there, yeah, I had to reduce the injuries. So by putting in some practices and some methods and systems to start with, like I mentioned, getting away, trying to educate the operators on moving away from a, a run-based model um, to more or less coming back and having a good strength foundation and a lot of different movements first. And that indicated over the first 12 months a massive reduction in our lower limb overuse injuries. Yep. So from there, management started to see that reduction in cost, which then allowed me to then have some monetary to go and spend bits and pieces on some monitoring tools, which obviously enhanced my programming and the outcomes of it. Fair enough, Nathan. I mean, you, you talked a little bit there about um, when you first came in with the unit, you know, you, you had guys on both ends of the spectrum, like the, the endurance-based guys versus the, the gym bro bodybuilding types as well. From your own experience, what, what do you think are the, like the, the main physical uh, modalities most officers fail on with regards to, you know, setting up either their own training or with regards to preparation for more of a specialist unit? Yeah, I think strength, um, and I know every good S&C, mostly working with this uh, population, will, will tell you that the foundations of proper raw strength, the grind out proper strength is very hard and it takes a long period of time to do. So um, strength foundations, if you don't have the strength then to be able to handle the, the forces and loads when you're running, 
always put the analogy, you don't uh, uh, run to get fit, you've got to be fit to run, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, and that in place, the, the foundations of, uh, yeah, your really good strength foundations to be able to accept them, them loads if you're going to run or move quick, and especially in our population, we're in 10 to 15, 20% of body weight on top with that external loading kit and being dynamic and explosive. So if you don't have that, that strength foundation there, then that's going to open up a whole can of worms. Um, I find the conditioning levels within the groups have always had that sort of middle ground um, aerobic capacity it hasn't been too bad. So we've always plotted along at a sub-max kind of an intensity. So, um, so that's where, again, looking at uh, whereabouts the conditioning model fits in with, um, yeah, I suppose, injury reduction model um, and strength and how much influence that strength has on that. Um, but always now I just talk back, if, if anyone is unsure of anything, go back to strength before going back to conditioning. And that's depending individually, of course, but um, when you're looking at a, back into a reconditioning rehab model, the foundation's always got to get back to strength. So mm -hmm. you're going to get back to there anyway if you get injured. So you're not going to go back to the conditioning side of the house um, until it's a, a certain phased approach. So, um, yeah, and again, strength lays the foundation for any power and explosive movements. So, um, yeah, I just always think, number one, uh, strength, and strength through various joint angles, as we know, various joint angles, various movements, and under various loaded conditions. Um, yeah, John, with, with that in, you can look at that into that screening model too. You can screen an individual operator within their own body weight, um, performing various of these movements. So you might come up with your own screen, but as soon as you add that external load into a movement pattern, they'll open up a whole range of deficiencies. So that's one thing I've found is a loaded movement will give the coach a really good indication now that uh, operator can handle that kind of stress. Mm -hmm. I mean, with you, you mentioned there, if you're your screening uh, process, what do you typically use for that, Jeremy? Do you go down the FMS route? Do you look more at the athletic ability assessment, or do you have like your own individual hybrid you've come up with? Yeah, over the years, I've I've now come up with a my um, hybrid kind of a, a screen. So initially, when the FMS came out, I did have, have used the FMS, but um, as you know, it's been very well researched the FMS over the years and. And I'd never used that as a predictive model. That's just me personally, because I just didn't find some of the movements linked into operational perspective. And that's just mm -hmm. my own personal um, my own personal opinion on it and what my experiences were. But in saying that, like I changed away from a, an inline lunge into a, a lunge with a with a rotation kind of movement um, with the operators using using one of the M4 primary weapons. So just seeing them, how they actually performed the lunge three ways and not only went, you know, linear forward, reverse lunge, laterally, and then how, just implement a rotation movement into it. Um, so, yeah, I, I had to put a crawl in there as well, just for looking at a lot of hip mobility with a crawl and a load of conditions if the guys are getting into any kind of um, confined spaces too and how the body moves and that kind of thing. Um, a carry is always good, picks up some things, some unilateral and bilateral carries. Um, again, an overhead squat, just a basic one, but just picks up a lot of lot of good issues through thoracic shoulder, hip, ankle, which is you can cut it three or four good ones out just through that simple assessment there. Mm -hmm. uh, one John there that I thought is obviously missed sometimes is the ankle calf complex, and obviously we know everything force goes straight through that ankle, foot, and calf, and 
always found a good cadence. Um, just single leg calf raise up there with a the cadence, just to pick up a lot of good plantar and dorsiflexion too there, which is limitation. So if you pick up that, if there's any deficiencies within that complex, then you look straight up the, the rest of the kinetic chains where there might be some uh, deficiencies of that movement. Um, but I think with the screen, it's just got to come back to the area. Well, I know the area where I am, big three issues are shoulders, knees and lower back. So we're really looking at how we can refine the model there to limit them kind of uh, injuries over the years of the operator. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in addition to your screening, you're saying there about uh, like strength standards and stuff like that as well. What's the, the, the standards you typically aim for with your guys? I know you've got a diverse age range within the, the population you work with. What are the, the main tests you typically try and perform with them and what is your, your gold standards you're trying to get them to? Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Over, over the years, it's changed. So originally, when I first came in, going over 10 years, when I first with the guys, a lot of things around numbers-based. I mean, we've all been through it. There's not a coach or anything out there at school and say, yeah, we need to chase numbers. We need to chase numbers. We need to look at, you know, what we're looking at 1.8 times, a good squat before we're doing any plyometrics, any kind of force absorption or transferring. But that's gone 10 years now for where I am now. That's all changed for me, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty lucky to to have some force plate testing. Yeah, we're looking at the, um, you know, the intermediate mid-thigh pull. We're looking at that. I've got linear transducers um, with gym aware now too. So I can pick up a lot of the velocity-based stuff with testing. So more or less, I've, I've been able to now get away from more or less the true 1RM kind of testing now because I, I just don't want to compress the lower back, lower lumbar with most of our, our guys now. So I don't have to put them through that volume of testing battery where... We're able to, if you use a force plate, we can do it in five to six seconds. And it's done without exposing yeah. the operators then to to that potential injury just through that uh, that old school mental uh, of um, doing a one RM or three RM testing. So that's been a uh, really good uh, help for me. But I'm just saying, if any coaches out there that can get a link into any universities that can assist with that kind of stuff, will be. I find that'll be one of the big things that I'll be going for if you don't have it within your own um, organisation is to get someone in there to assist, to give uh, look at the individual profiling of the app, uh, of the operators. Um, so, yeah, you've you got to look at your low explosiveness with the role because most of the role in the, in the, in the tactical population, they need to be explosive. You know, so you've got to look at the lower, lower leg explosiveness. Um, again, looking at the upper body push-pull movements, we look at bench pulls, probably a good one, the horizontal pulling, because especially within you know, law enforcement and military populations, the old vertical chins has been the, the big go and standards for many, many years. But I find there's a lot of basic weakness and horizontal pulling um, deficiencies to the horizontal pressing. So that's probably one area I'd look a bit more, um, change up the my kind of stems in that relation to having a vertical pull, just looking at a horizontal pull. Um, and then with other things, might go, go away from a back squat, go away from the old school there. So some of the operators, that the older ones, will be into a single-legged squat. So my gold standards there, don't, some of the younger guys will be in the old back squatting, but then the older ones will be into some more single-legged work because they just can't get into that range of having it loaded up from the, from the top down. Um, so their gold standard, for example, might be a 12-rep, continuous movement with a five kilo plate single leg squat right without a, a three rep deficit each side from left to right so 
I think it's again knowing knowing your population and your unit and what's actually going to challenge them more or less compared to what you want to put out as a coach compared mm -hmm. to um, what the traditional strength uh, guidelines might be. Um, so I think that's a big thing to be able to be adaptable with that to get your um, to maintain the longevity of the operators. So, um, because sometimes you've got to pull them back, and that's the thing. I'm, I'm, we're all guilty of that, you know, with um, earlier on too, just sticking by numbers and percentages and a lot of things like that. So I've learned over time now that there's a lot of resources, a lot of dollars into these individual specialists that go over the years. And like pro sport, not only like pro sport, you've got to make sure that that um, that same team be out on that field each day in the best condition that they can be in, regardless. So. Um, and that's your duty as a coach to make sure that you're uh, able to provide that. Cool. I mean, you touched upon it briefly there, Jeremy, but um, how does that, like, obviously you go for your testing barrier, but with the overall training program for the guys within the unit, how does that training program differ? And what does it look like for the younger operator who's just made it into the unit from selection versus, you know, the, the more senior veteran guy who's in his like, you know, mid fifties? Yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the art and the trickiness of yeah. uh, coaching this population. Um, yeah, again, it's it's straight establishing that that profile and that individual. Like I mentioned, if you can do the force placed test, you can pick up the strengths and weaknesses there. But as we get older, we we know there's a genetic potential ceiling effect that comes down on everyone, and it's uh, it comes to a range of where where you just got to get risk versus reward out of out of your sessions. So again. It's got to be individual based, but in that individual base, you can still have a group training session. You know what I mean? So the, the operators can still work together, but everything has to be individual. Um, and in that, it just comes back to just basics of looking at your foundations of your strengths. Uh, I, I find there's a lot too much variance in a lot of training programs. So mm -hmm. keeping things simple and making sure that the simple things are done consistently wins, wins hands down every time. So. Uh, the younger guys, yeah, they might have an extra one or two uh, strength sessions in there where I can afford to have a bit more, a bit more volume and intensity in there with their lifting. Where uh, some of the older older operators might be up a bit higher in their repetition range, so they might be working a one by fifteen on five or six movements, and and that's enough stimulus for them. You know what I mean? Compared to some of the other guys, I might be able to get back down to a bit more volume and higher represent uh, reps and intensity ranges because they're able to recover quicker from it. But I think the older guys, I have my over 40s group. Um, so for me, programming, I just look at um, a more or less a rookie, seniors and a freshman kind of American model. That's how I just program myself individual. And that's just based on their age, their training history, injury history, and uh, yeah, the strengths and sort of weaknesses within that. Um, I think too, you can look at the the conditioning side of the house that not everything has to be on feet now to get that same output, especially when you get into the over 40 operators. Um, a lot of work they do is explosive. So a lot of time if they're on feet, running in feet, there's no use double back up with that within their conditioning session. So that's where, again, the use of the, the sports science and the wearables has come in handy where I've used GPSs and, and heart rate while they've done their skills training. So providing, for example, if they've done their, their close quarter battle uh, or, or CQB, they call it, um, 
their hostage receptions. They might be doing accelerations, decelerations in kits, doing 20 run-throughs. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, they've done, you know, it's two kilometres worth of intermittent sprints and short and then as soon as I show the operators what they've done volume-wise and intensity-wise there, then they get a clear understanding that they don't need to go in the afternoon and start doing another high-intensity interval training session running because they know they've, they've hit them hit them volumes and uh, intensities under load. And that's the biggest thing that's been done under load. So um, that's where that kind of, that kind of uh, sports science stuff has helped a lot to educate back in, to remodel how we actually... Mm-hmm. When we train, we're training to prepare the operators for when they're in kit. I mean, that we get out of kit as much as we can when we're doing our, our S&C kind of stuff to make sure they're ready for when they actually don the kit and get into it. Cool. I mean, with the guys you're working with then, how often how often a week are they in training with you like for their the strength work and for their conditioning work? And you mentioned there about obviously doing some monitoring with regards to their, their technical, like, tactical work like if they're doing any sort of cqb run-throughs and stuff so do you sit down with the like unit commanders and then be like right what's the, the overall aim of this week or the plan for this week and work back from there yeah i, I get it working with sort of more or less our training kind of cell area of the, of the unit and then just looking through um what's the skills based training they're going to be doing for that week so more or less yeah marrying off what what sessions I can implement on the intensities and the volumes of what they're doing outside of that. So I think that's the biggest key is that um, with anyone working in the population, not just when they turn up in the morning to do their PT or whatever the physical training, if they call it, not having an understanding of what's going to be done for the next six hours after that or mm-hmm. the other way around. If they've done the skills training first throughout the day um, and then they come to us in the afternoon for their strength and conditioning is knowing what they've actually done prior to that or days before that. So, in general, yeah, we've got a five-day five model of S&C um, during the week. Um, so that, that obviously marries in there as best we can with what they're doing skill-wise. And, and that's not taking into consideration in operational needs too. So that throws a whole other spanner into the complexity depending on what tasks they do operationally. Um, because at the end of the day, yeah, if they're moving or just even standing around in kit, the amount of energy and, and compression going through that lumbar spine is massive. So... Um, even little simple things that you can implement uh, through your gym based things like if you're looking at if they're running around doing fire and movement kind of things in load all day uh, why are we going to go lift off the ground in strength at the end of the day so that, that's a big indicator thinking okay the lumbar spine there's a lot of compressive tightness going to be there then we are we going to go and deadlift off the ground at the end of the day after all that compression no we're not so that's where you've got to be adaptable and then um, educate and reinforce to the guys the risk reward of doing that. So, um, yeah, so that's a that's a thing that I've introduced. No lifting on days, obviously, when we're doing sort of CQB and long days, trying to expose that compressive load through the back. Cool. It's interesting you say there about like, the whole education process with the guys as well. When you first started out in the, the unit you're with now, was it a brand new role you're walking into or was it um, something that had been up for a while? And how did you get the, the buy-in from the guys in that unit into you as a coach working with them? Yeah, with the role, when I went in there, there was an overall sort of a health and fitness kind of mould of, of the role. So it was more or less a lot of circuit-based stuff that I, I looked at. Um, and then there was a lot of self-managed kind of training and that. So... 
Um, so taking on any new role, I was pr pretty fortunate. I had um, some friends within the unit that I'd worked with previously in, in other policing organisations. So when word had got out sort of within that unit that I was coming in to look at the strength and conditioning side of it, I sort of more had a bit more of a leg in compared to someone coming in raw. So, yeah. uh, But then I still had to do and take a, um, a bit of a, a sit-back approach. So I didn't go in all guns a-blazing because I know within that population, there's, um, there's, they're very wary of who's coming in and what's going, uh, what's going to be done, um, just for a lot of personality kinds of things. But um, so originally, I just went in there and just probably for the first month, just looked at how they actually done their physical training daily. Just went in there, just started talking to the operators, getting to know the ones that I didn't already know a bit better, seeing what kind of training they did, just had just got to know them themselves. I think that's a big part of getting buy-in. You've got, you've got to know the individual first, you know? So if you don't know uh, the ins and outs of the individual, how you're going to get the two-way respect when you want to hand them over a program, so to speak, and if you're going to get them to do it, because otherwise um, you won't get buy-in for the outcomes with it. So so for that probably, probably month, I just sat back in. I actually got involved and just done a lot of training with the guys too. So I just jumped in and done sessions with them. So it wasn't anything that I designed initially. I just got in there and just said, yeah, just whatever they were doing on the day, I just got in there and just well, tried to grind it out with them. Um, and sort of just, yeah, I was just there to be a face. And then probably a, a month or so after that, I started just to, there was a big whiteboard in the gym at the time. And I just started writing down my own kind of sessions that I was doing for myself. But, in that knowing that I had an underlining model sort of related to the task, you know, and so more or less in there, I was sort of hiding what I was trying to promote for the area to get by with it. So it wasn't not too long after that where I actually seen a lot of the operators start writing down their programs, just copying them and then started doing them themselves. So the, that slowly, I think, introduced a bit more awareness and how they were responding to it. And then from there, it just it kicked off and that's when just got a bit more um, buy-in from management and where things become a bit more structured daily within times and uh, overseeing the program to where it is sort of today with it. So um, it's taken a, it's taken a while, but it's, uh, it's had its ups and downs like everywhere. Uh, it's interesting here and it's, it's good to reinforce like some of the commonalities amongst a lot of really good coaches is that like, you know, not rushing in, just taking the time to get to know the individuals themselves and what makes them tick. And obviously, which I think is always beneficial if anyone you're working with is just training yourself, showing them that you're willing to pout and you wouldn't ask them to do anything you're not willing to engage in yourself as well. Um, no, that's that's really interesting insight from you, Jeremy. What I was going to ask is obviously um, you're based over in Australia. You know, you've done a lot of work there. Um, for the guys out there who may want to get in touch with you or find out more about your work and that, how can guys reach out to you? Um, they can reach out to me on uh, just social media or through my email. So just Jeremy uh, underscore MXA performance at yahoo.com uh, or on Instagram, Jeremy underscore MXA uh, underscore performance. So there are two ways that. Uh, anyone can direct message me or uh, email me. Uh, I'm open to help out many of the first responder or military uh, community. Uh, happy to send through any kind of um, uh, research articles, research papers. I've got a fair few research papers I've done within the, the population I work in. So I'm willing to 
uh, send them through. So um, I'll be quite happy to, John. That's awesome. I'll make sure I uh, link up those into our show notes, mate. And yep. final one for me, mate, just curious. Could you give us a book, app, or website recommendation you find useful? Yeah, the one that I've been reading for the last few months is um, a book by a good exercise physiologist and strength conditioning coach and sports scientist, uh, Martin Bouchette. He works at Paris Saint-Germain Soccer. I was fortunate enough to meet uh, Martin Bouchette in probably 2012 here in Australia, and I really uh, really liked his 30-15 intermittent fitness test, which I've actually implemented a fair bit now uh, with my own um, with my own crew that I work with. Uh, his book, The Science and Application of High Intensity Interval Training, um, it's a good read. Uh, himself and Paul Larson, I think, uh, were the editors. Um, so that's a, a, a really good book on high intensity interval training, how to program that into it. Um, and a lot of things are based off, uh, off that 3015 uh, intermittent test that I like, just due to the deceleration, acceleration um, movements in that test. Awesome stuff. I'll definitely check that out and I'll link that in with our show notes as well. Uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for taking the time today, mate, to sit down and chat through some stuff with me. Really appreciate it. I've made a ton of notes here. Um, so thank you very much, mate. Thank you, John. And thank you very much. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. No worries, mate. Speak to you soon. Okay, bud. Take care. See you, mate. Okay, guys. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed the content here, please check out our website at monarchhumanperformance.com and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with future podcast episodes, articles, and upcoming content, including training programs and live and online workshops.